American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. History for jerks. History, history for jerks. Samantha, that's a hickey. Oh, American Timelines. I thought this was Melon Paul and Tit Girl. That's my other podcast. Sorry, I get confused when you're doing so many podcasts. Well, you have made up quite a few podcasts. Yeah, we got a lot. We got Melon Ball and Tit Girl. That's where it's just like a girl that has tits and a guy with a melon baller. Uh, and they talk about uh, politics. Okay. Uh, so I just get mixed up. Yes. Okay. This is episode 99. Oh, my God. One more. One more. Next episode. Our next, our next episode will be Everybody wins a, um, a signed, coupon. A signed coupon. A, a coupon. If you go to your nearest CVS pharmacy. Yes. And you tell them you won That's American right. Timelines yep. coupons. I listened to American Timelines podcast in their 100th episode. They said to walk into a CVS. Yep. And show them my bush. Show them uh, your bush. Show them your bush and, and say, I say, listen to American Timelines. And, yes, and then yep. they'll give you... They'll um, give you 30 cents off... Coupons. They'll give you 30 cents off four pounds of uh, dog food. That's right. Yeah. All right. At the CVS. Tonight we are talking about 1967. 1967. We're in a new year. That's right. And I apologize for those of you who downloaded the previous episode before I realized it wasn't... Uh, 1967? Yeah, it wasn't uh, descriptive right on the deal when you download it yeah i wrote because i was been working on 1967 so long i forgot what episode we recorded you so. forgot who you were I yeah think, for so a some of them said 1967 then i tried to fix it and i did something all right nobody Sometimes cares people download it what's it, what's going on in 1967 babe so as we go into the new year yes from 66 to 67 the monkeys i'm a believer mm-hmm. was the number one song if yes. you remember that yep. uh that actually, it was December 31st that took over. So that was right. probably the last thing we said on the last episode. Yes. We're in the swinging 60s. Uh, civil the rights movement 60s. is happening. Uh, Beatles are starting everywhere. to end, but they're everywhere. The biggest ever. Uh, Rolling Stones are out. The Doors are out. It's like a big revolution. Vietnam War is drugs. On. Vietnam War is going. Lyndon B. Johnson is the president. He has his dick out JFK all the time. gets his dick out, we found out. Yeah. Um, and things are changing. Uh, people shouldn't be long here. There's a lot of murders. Yes. As always. Uh, but some of the things in 1967, uh, are, uh, that, you know, for example, Tropicana orange juice is, uh, 49 cents. Okay. For a half gallon. All right. In 1967. Pretty good deal. Yeah. And thank you for listening to American Timelines, where we give you the prices of orange juice Mm -hmm. year by year. Also, Pringles. Mm -hmm. Oh, we didn't say we didn't say our names. You didn't say I'm Amy. That's because you went into some bullshit. You're Amy. She's Amy, 
And I am McGillicuddy. Thank you for listening. Uh, this will be your favorite episode. Uh, also, Pringles were first introduced in 1967. Pringles potato chips. Oh, you ever have those? Yeah. I enjoy those every once in a while. Yeah, those came out in 1967. So you are eating a 1967 chip when okay. you eat that. Probably from that year, too. That's Maybe. the year they made them all, and then they just... The U.S. government required TV stations to air anti-smoking commercials in okay. 1967. Okay. Uh, here's a little thing that happened. You know, some of these things, the next slew of things are all things that don't really have a date, but I know right. they happened this year. Okay. Um, listen to this. You're not going to believe this is true. Or I should say, true or false. The Monkees sold more records than the Beatles and Rolling Stones combined in 1967. Really? Yep. Can you wow. I, they were just a fad, I think, more than anything. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you yeah. know, because they weren't real. You know, they were cast. Yeah, they were like actors we or whatever. That. According to Quora.com, mm-hmm. the Beatles released Revolver in August of 1966 and then went quiet while they spent months recording Sgt. Pepper's. Oh. The Monkees released their debut album in October of 66 and was still on the top of the charts at the start of 67. And it was knocked off by their follow-up album, More of the Monkees, which had a clear run of the charts without Beatles competition. Okay. The Monkees then released their third album a week before Sgt. Pepper's comes out, and it was the first time the two bands had a chance to compete head-to-head. The Monkees enjoyed one week at the top before Sgt. Pepper's dominated the second half of the year. I was going to say. And then the Monkees came out with their fourth album in December and took the top space for the final month. So it's true that the Monkees sold more albums in the USA in 1967 than the Beatles. They, re- they released four huge selling albums of their career, and they were all uh, on the charts in 67, and their career effectively died out after that. Yeah. Their new albums stopped selling, and sales of their initial releases stalled. As it stands now, Sgt. Peppers has sold more albums than the Monkees' entire catalog. Mm-hmm. But during 1967, the Monkees reigned supreme. Wow. The yep. Monkees. The Monkees. Uh, did you know that in 1967, the original London Bridge was relocated? No. Do you want to take a wild guess at where it was relocated to? The original London Bridge? No. I have no idea. How would I know that? Lake Havasu City, Arizona. Oh, it was? Yep. Why'd they do that? It was built in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. It spanned the River Thames, mm-hmm. as you would say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was taken apart. Uh, so the, they took it. They had to take it down because it wasn't. It needed to be replaced because it wasn't built for the kind of traffic that it was having. I oh guess. yeah. When was it built? Eighteen thirties. Eighteen thirties. I thought it was older than that. Nope. Sorry, you're wrong. Okay. I'm schooling you right now. I know you are. I'm taking you to nerd school. But according to AARP magazine, an <laughs> article I read. <laughs> Because you read that <laughs> cover to cover every month. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. It's got some possible backstage Bettys in there. I was going to say. Some hot ladies. Yeah. Uh, businessman Robert P. McCullough. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, was a, he was a businessman in all kinds of things. Oil and cha- mm-hmm. manufacturing of chainsaws. Uh, he once tried to market a two-man gyroplane, cross between a helicopter and a small airplane. Anyway... He bought the London Bridge and moved it from England to Arizona to create a tourist attraction in the desert. Did is it there? Is it still there? Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, it's still there. Uh, and so he was. That's bizarre. 
he the Lake Havasu City was a new community he was developing at the edge of a man-made reservoir. Mm-hmm. He paid two million, almost two and a half million, for the bridge, and seven million to have its granite blocks disassembled and shipped across the ocean and through the Panama Canal to Long Beach, California, where it was trucked to Arizona and reassembled over a concrete structure. Initially, the bridge the bridge spanned dry land until mm-hmm. a canal was dug under it and flooded. It just spanned dry land. Yeah, I bet that was dumb. It was stupid. Yeah, but uh, anyway, they had a big ceremony in the seventies, and uh, McCullough ended up dying in seventy-seven. But his gambit paid off. Lake Havasu, the Lake Havasu City, has developed into a tourist magnet that attracts seven hundred seventy-five thousand visitors a year because of that stupid yeah. London Bridge. Yep, that's what they go see. Yep, that's so dumb. Let's go go see the original London Bridge. Uh, Inspired by McCullough's purchase, San Diego investors in 1968 offered to buy London's Big Ben Clock Tower. Oh, my God. But a city official wrote back to say it's not for sale. No, I wouldn't say. Jackass. Idiots. Slurpees became available at all 7-Eleven locations in 1967. Nice. The drink was sold in stores beginning in 65. I wonder what flavors they were. They They had them before, but they were called Icy. Yeah, I remember them being called Icy, even though I wasn't around. 67. Uh, 7-Eleven's in-house advertising agency renamed the drink Slurpee because of the noise it makes when you drink it. Now, Icy was a different company I think Icy then. is still... Because uh, that's what Target always would sell with Icy. I think they still sell Icy, but I think their 7-Elevens were called Slurpees. I okay. Guess. I don't really know. Exactly. Yeah. But it's just what I found on the Wikipedias. Also in 1967, according to uh, Haribo... Haribo? makes the gummy bears oh right right gummy bears came out in 1967 okay did you know that the green gummy bears are strawberry not lime i did not know that that. red ones are raspberry are you sure yes i wonder if they're still like that no that that is what it is okay uh but they originated they were like haribo makes them but they started in germany yeah where it was popular under the name gummy bar or gummy barchen Gum Arabic was the original gum Arabic. This is fascinating. Was the original base ingredient used to produce the original gummy bears, hence the name gum or gummy. Hans Riegel Sr., a confectioner from Bonn, started the Haribo Company in 1920. Mm -hmm. And he was inspired by trained bears seen at street festivities and markets in Europe through the 19th century. And they had a candy called the Dancing Bear. And that was the original. Oh. That became gummy bears. I wonder what makes them so that when you you can't really bite into them. You know how you kind of... You can't really bite into it. Yeah, I don't. I wonder why they're like that. And that's, it's not just like a gumdrop or something would be. Uh, do you want me to look up the recipe? No, or? I don't. I'm not that interested. You're not? Not at all. Not even a little bit? Nope. The top TV shows in 1967 were Andy Griffith, Lucy, The Lucy Show, Gomer Pyle, USMC, Gunsmoke, and Family Affair. Okay. Medicaid went into effect. My grandma used to watch Gunsmoke. Did she? Yeah, Grandma's she did. Uh, Medicaid. M- Medicaid went into effect? Yeah. Speaking of your grandma. Oh, see, socialism. That's when we became a socialist call, uh, Hello? country. And then I have two events that happened. Okay. In January 1st. First one is the residents of the small town of Ellington, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Saved the life of a private pilot on on New Year's Day 
whose radio had failed while he was flying through the fog and rain. After townspeople heard a low-flying but not visible plane, the Ellington Fire Department brought three fire engines and its 25 volunteer firemen to the town's unlit airstrip at Hyde Field, and dozens of people followed in their cars. Lionel Labricci, a trooper with the Connecticut State Police, directed everyone to park on either side of the runway and to light it up with their headlights. And the pilot, Frank Robinson, was able to spot the revolving lights of the fire trucks and then the lit runway. Oh, wow. And he commented later, it was wonderful the way they did it. If they hadn't, I'd end up in the woods. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's pretty cool. How cool is that? Yeah, that's pretty what neat. What's chance of that happening? Now, do you want me to do my one that doesn't have a date before you start getting into the dates? Yeah, I'm still not into dates. I still you just said Year's January Day. 1st. Yeah, January 1st. Yeah. I guess I have another one. Yeah, so let's do your one, January I got one. two. Let's do your and, first one that doesn't yeah. have a date. Okay, so in 1967, the best-selling toy, one of the best-selling toys was the Ouija board. Is that a toy, really? Yeah, of course it is. And um, it, But adults play it to summon demons, right? Well, I'll get into it. Oh. So it came actually straight out of the American 19th century obsession with spiritualism. Ooh. That, and which is the belief that the dead are able to communicate with the living. Do you, do you think they are? Mm, don't I don't know. I don't know. Jury's out. Come on. Just give me a yes or no. So spiritualism had been around for years in Europe. And it hit America hard in 1848 with these two sisters that um, became famous, named oh. the Fox Sisters. And oh. they lived in upstate New York. Okay. They claimed to receive messages from spirits who would rap on the walls in answer to questions. And they recreated their act in parlors across the state. Like that? Yeah, stop that. Oh, my God. It's real. No, it's not. So anyway, because of the stories about the sisters and other spiritualists in the new national press, because yeah. the national press was new at, this at that yeah, time. Yeah, I guess it would be. Spiritualism worked for Americans. It was compatible with Christian dogma, meaning oh. you could hold a seance on Saturday night and... You have no qualms going to church the next day. It doesn't mean you're a devil worshiper. Okay. And then it was an, an acceptable, even wholesome activity to contact spirits at seances through automatic wholesome. writing. Yeah. It's not wholesome. Or table turning parties in oh. which participants would place their hands on a small table and watch it begin to shake and rattle while yeah. they all declared that they weren't moving it. When's it going to roll, though? <laughs> shake and rattle. Yeah. All right. The movement also offered comfort in an era when the average lifespan was less than 50. Wait a minute. So you're saying this is all before Parker Brothers got a hold yes, of it. Yes. People is, were doing this. It, we haven't had the talking board yet. I'm just giving oh, you the background. Just, oh, this is people just talking to the This is anyway. spiritualism. Yeah. yeah. So women would die in childbirth. Children died of disease. Men died in war. So nobody really, most people didn't reach past the age of 50. All right. So people were dying young. But you were saying people were putting their hands on a board or something. No, so on the table. Oh, on a table. So even Mary Todd Lincoln conducted seances in the White House after their 11-year-old son died, died of a yeah. fever in 1862. Yeah, they had a bunch of kids that died. I thought it was just one. No? no I think they had a few. Everybody's kids yeah. died. Yeah. yeah. And during the Civil War, spiritualism gained adherence in droves because people were desperate to connect with loved ones who'd gone away to war and never come back. Yeah. Poor people. So there's um, a book by a man named Robert Murch, and he's a Ouija historian. Really? Yes. And he's been Are you sure it's Ouija, not Ouija? It's Ouija. Oh. And he'd been researching the story of the board since 1992. And he, he said communicating with the dead was common. It wasn't seen as, a, as bizarre or weird. Okay. It's hard to imagine that now. We look at that and think, why are you opening the gates of hell? Yes. Why are you opening but the gates of hell? But that was not what anyone was thinking of when they started the Kennard Novelty Company, which okay. is the first producers of the Ouija board. Oh. They were more into making money. 
Okay. So, as spiritualism had grown in the culture, so did frustration with how long it took to get any meaningful message out of the spirits. Because you're, what they would do is they would call out the alphabet one letter at a time and wait for a knock at the right letter. I like that better. And that was, like, so boring. Let's try it. A. B. I just hear the dog snoring. Dog snoring. Um, so, after all, rapid communication was with breathing humans as at far distances was a possibility because the telegraph was a thing at this time. Right. So that's to them, it's just like a telegraph from farther. They're out. like, why shouldn't the spirits be as easy to reach as, the as people on the telegraph? Huh. So people were desperate for methods of, that, of communication that would be quicker. Okay. Um, so the Kennard Novelty Company in, in, um, decided they were going to do this, create this. Okay. So in 1886, the Associated Press reported on a new phenomenon taking over the spiritualist camps in Ohio, the talking board. Ooh. It was, for all intents and purposes, an Ouija board with letters, numbers, and a planchette-like device that um, to point to them. A planchette-like device. Yeah, planchette is what that's called, that thing that you move around. What, what, what was the use of that before this? I have no idea. You don't know? I think okay. they just made it for the thing. Okay. In 1890... Um, oh, I'm sorry. So the article uh, went far and wide, but it was Charles Kennard of Baltimore, Maryland, who acted on it. In okay. 1890, he pulled together a group of four other investors to okay. start the Kennard Novelty Company to exclusively make and market these new talking boards. None of the men were spiritualists. Okay, so that company didn't exist men. before. He started yep. just for this. But they didn't have the Ouija board yet. They It didn't have a name. Okay. So um, contrary to popular belief, it is not... Um, a Ouija is not a combination of the French for yes and the German ja, J-A. Uh -huh. It um, Merch says that based on his research, it was Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters, who was a, supposedly a medium. Okay. She supplied the handles. Sitting around the table, they asked the board what they should call it, and the name Ouija came through. And when they asked what it meant, the board replied, good luck. Oh, so the... The mediums named it themselves, or the spirits yeah. named it. Yes. Okay. So knowing that if they couldn't prove that the board worked, they wouldn't get their patent, Bond brought the um, indispensable Helen Peters, this medium lady, yeah. with him to the patent office in Washington when he filed his application. Okay. There, the chief patent officer demanded a demonstration, and he said, if the, it, if the board can accurately spell out my name, which supposedly was unknown to Bond and Peters. Yeah. That he'd allow the patent to proceed. What? So what kind of rules is that? They all sat down, communed with the spirits, and the planchette faithfully spelled out the patent officer's name. Really? We don't know if it was. So the spirits knew the guy's name. Yeah, supposedly. Wow. So do you think that's what? That's how any patents got made in 1967. Yeah, you had to like board. guess that guy's name. No, you had to show that it was it would it worked. Oh, that it did something. I see. Right. So. Um, on February 10th, 1891, a white-faced and visibly Wait, February shaken... February 10th, 1891, the same day that Sofia Kovalevskaya, a Russian mathematician, died? Yes. That same day? That's the only thing you could find on that date. Yes. Okay, I was going to say. Um, so, yes, the patent officer awarded Bond a patent for his new toy. Toy or game, quote. Toy or game. So it is officially a toy. The first patent offers no explanation as how the device works. It just says it does. Huh. So that was that mystery was part of a more or less conscious marketing effort. The, these were very shrewd businessmen. 
and ultimately it was a money maker. They didn't care why people thought it worked. Yeah. So, and it was a moneymaker. By 1892, the Kennard Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to two in Baltimore, two in New York, two in Chicago, one in London. What? Just to make Ouija boards? Yep. And by 1893, Kennard and Bond were out owing to some internal pressure and the old adage about money changing everything. Holy so God. they were out of the business. So that by this time, there's this man named William Fold. He'd gotten in on the ground floor as an employee, and now he was running the company. Huh. So in 1898... Um, what was that bang? Did you hear that bang? Yeah. It was either a ghost. Or our kids or upstairs. Or our children who are awake upstairs. Yes, it could be. In 1898, with the blessing of Colonel Bowie, the majority shareholder and one of the only two remaining original investors, he licensed the exclusive rights to make the board. Okay. So then that was the boom years. and um, The boom years? Of the Ouija board. That's when it started to really take off. Oh. So in 1919, Bowie sold the remaining business interest in a Ouija to fold his protege for one dollar. Oh my gosh. Um and interestingly in early nineteen twenty seven, yeah, fold he died in this freak accident where he went up to the roof of one of the factories to yeah. supervise the replacement of a flagpole. Uh-huh. And according to the Baltimore Sun, he was standing near the edge of the roof, grasping an iron support of the pole to study start to steady himself. And the workman said when the support suddenly pulled away and he toppled over backward. And then he in- grabbed hold of a s- windowsill on the way down. Yeah. Then the window suddenly closed and it sent him crashing down to the sidewalk below. Oh, no. And he broke several ribs but was expected to survive until a bump in the road on the way to the hospital sent one of the fractured bones through his heart and he died. What? Is that a crazy way to die. That is a crazy way to die. That we should always look up how everyone died. Well, that. Do you think it has to do with spirits? Maybe. So, um, there was this weird place in American culture that this board, Ouija board, seemed to tap into. Yeah. It was marketed as both a mystical oracle and as family entertainment. Fun with an element of otherworldly excitement. And it wasn't only spiritualists who bought the board. In fact, people who disliked the Ouija board the most tended to be spirit mediums because they thought, oh, now nobody's going to come to me now. Nobody's going to buy my scam. And it was was people of all ages, professions, education. um, Really? People want to believe in something. So the need to believe in something else out there is powerful. You know, like Poison said, give me something to believe in. You take the high road, and I'll take the low. So um, then in the 1910s and 20s, with the devastation of World War I and the Jazz Age and Prohibition, there was a surge in Ouija popularity then. Okay, more people dying. It was so normal that in May 1920, Norman Rockwell depicted a man and a woman playing the Ouija board on the Saturday Evening Post. Okay. During the Great Depression... The Fold Company opened new factories to meet demand for the board. In 1967, which is where we are. Yeah. Um, Current day. This was the year after Parker Brothers bought the game from the Fold Company. Oh, two, that's why we got Two it. million boards were sold, outselling Monopoly. Wow. Two million? Yep. More people were talking to spirits than playing yep. like Monopoly. And that same year saw more American troops in Vietnam than the counterculture summer of love in San Francisco and race riots in Newark, Detroit, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee. So, strange Ouija tales also made frequent titillating appearances in American newspapers. 
so in 19 yep in 1920 national wire services reported that would-be crime solvers were turning to their ouija boards for clues in the mysterious murder of a new york gambler joseph burton elwell much to the frustration of the police in 1921, the New York Times reported that a Chicago woman being sent to a psychiatrist, psychiatric hospital tried to explain to doctors she wasn't suffering from mania, but Ouija spirits had told her to leave her mother's dead body in the living room for 15 days before burying her in the backyard. A Ouija board told her that? Yes. To do <laughs> so that. she did so it? So she did it. Oh, gross. In 1930, newspaper readers thrilled to accounts of two women in Buffalo, New York, who'd murdered another woman, supposedly on the encouragement of the Ouija board messages. And uh. then in 1941, a 23-year-old gas station attendant from New Jersey told the New York Times that he'd joined the Army because the Ouija board told him to. Hmm. In 1958... A Connecticut court decided not to honor the Ouija board will of Mrs. Helen Dow Peck, who left only $1,000 <laughs> to two former servants and an insane... Suddenly the Ouija board said, leave it all. $152,000 to Mr. John Gale Forbes, a lucky but bodiless spirit who con- who contacted her via the Ouija board. She tried to leave that much money to the spirit through the Ouija board. Oh, she tried to leave it to a spirit. Yep. I thought it was spirit was telling somebody to leave. No, she was trying to I leave. Guess. She left all that money to that. That's insane. And so they even, there was even um, poems and short stories that were com- supposedly dictated by the Ouija board. Poems? Poems. poems? There was also <clears throat> one spirit in particular named Patience Worth, who was supposed to be a 17th century English woman. Yeah. That And there's actual poems that you can find and read that wow. are supposedly written supposedly by her. Supposedly written by her. Yes. The wow. F- the following year, Curran's friend Emily Grant, Wait a minute. That was, oh, never mind. Let me you want that. me to edit this out? Yeah, edit this out, too. Edit this out. So there was also um, people saying they communicated um, via Ouija board by Samuel Clemens, Mark Visa Twain. Visa V, uh, Ouija Mark, board? Yeah, that Mark Twain was contacting um, this woman named Mrs. Pearl Curran. She said that. Huh. And then... Let's see if there's anything else interesting about the Ouija board. Ouija existed on the periphery of American culture. It was popular, mysterious, interesting until 1973. And you know what happened in 1973? No. That year, The Exorcist came out. Oh, and nobody wanted to do it. That's right. So in, now, correct me if I'm wrong, which I probably am, because I don't. I've never seen The Exorcist. Yes, you have. I made you see it in the theater. <coughs> yeah, but slept through it by oh. the way. Uh, no I'm sure I watched it but I don't you know I yeah. have the memory of a dog yeah, so I've forgotten I've actually forgotten what are we doing right now yeah, What's this? what are we standing here Ooh. sitting in here in front of the microphone uh, correct me if I'm wrong yeah I actually forgot what we're <laughs> something about the exorcist oh in the exorcist are they play, does yes. it start because they're playing a Ouija board yes so in the Exorcist, um, the little girl plays by her plays the Ouija board by herself. Really, and that's how Captain Howdy is the name See, of I the remember that spirit, and that's how she gets possessed by the devil. Apparently, okay, so it really is. Um, and then, um, so like just like when Psycho came out, yeah. nobody wanted to take showers. Now, the Ouija board comes out, or Exorcist comes out, and nobody wants to play with an Ouija board anymore. Huh. Um. So it became a tool of the devil almost overnight. And um, then it became popping up in all kinds of horror movies and stuff. Okay. 
Um, there was all kinds. Christian religious groups were very wary of the board. They said scripture denounced communication with spirits through See, mediums. See, now I thought at the beginning you said that's not true, that it was very wholesome. No, it was, but I'm talking about now it's in the 70s. Now the 70s, they say it's yeah. not wholesome. Right. Right, but Catholic. You said it was. calls the Ouija board far from harmless as recently as 2011. And 700 Club host Pat Robertson declared that demons can reach us through the board. Really? Even within the paranormal community, Ouija boards enjoyed a dodgy reputation. Whoa. Um, when um, the Merch, the guy who is the Ouija board historian, he said when he first began speaking at paranormal conventions, he was told to leave his antique boards at home because they scared people too much. Really? Yeah. So, um, huh. but there's still people hundreds of thousands of them. of them sold. Yeah, you just bought one for our kids. I know. I love it. So it is becoming popular again that because of the economic uncertainty and the board's usefulness as a plot device and paranormal activity one and two, it was in there. And, oh, it was um, in that movie? Yep. Those movies? Yep. And it, Breaking Bad, it was in an episode of that, although I can't remember that, but apparently it was. I don't either. And um, Hot Topic, the mall uh, goth store, sells yeah. a set of a Ouija board bra and underwear. Oh. And uh, for those wishing to communicate with the Beyond while on the go, there's an app Wait, that you can get. those wishing to communicate with Beyonce? No, the Beyond. Oh, the Beyond. Hasbro also sh Hasbro also released a more mystical version of the game and because at first it was glow-in-the-dark. Oh. And then um, they made a classic version. Really? That That's what we got. Oh, my God. And it's Interesting. 2012 rumors that Universal was in talks to make a film based on the game. Oh, come on. Come on. So this information I got from Wikipedia. Also, there was a SmithsonianMag.com article oh, SmithsonianMag. by Linda com. Rodriguez McRobbie. Yep. Shout out SmithsonianMag, y'all. And so that was just a little bit about the Ouija board. Well, thank you for sharing. That was good information. I hope so. I don't know if it was dumb well, or not. Well, I'm falling all in love with you all over again. Oh, so it must have been all right. Yep. Well, that thank you for sharing that. On January, also on New Year's Day, this is the last thing on January 1st, mm -hmm. uh, police raided a Los Angeles gay bar. It's actually after midnight, not on New Year's Day. Like, it's midnight, New Year's Eve. It's January 1st now. Yeah. Police raided a Los Angeles gay bar called the Black Cat Tavern mm -hmm. and arrested several patrons for kissing as they celebrated New Year. Oh, New Year. that's terrible. The violence that followed would escalate into a more widespread riot. The bar was established in November of 66. And two months later, on New Year's Eve, several plainclothes LAPD officers infiltrated the tavern. According to the local gay newspaper Tangents, <coughs> which is a great name for yes, gay newspaper, it is. The black cat was happy and hopping before undercover police arrived and started beating patrons as they were ringing in the new year. That's all gay bars are, is happy and hopping. That's yeah, all they ever exactly are. Exactly right. So why bother them? I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know. There were there were colored balloons covering the ceiling and oh, three glittering. Oh, so cute. Three glittery Christmas trees. Moments later, all hell I bet hell it was so charming loose. in it there. It probably was. After arresting, especially in the 60s, the gay yes. bar in the 60s, oh, yeah. after arresting several patrons for kissing as they celebrated the occasion, the undercover police officers began beating several of the patrons and oh. ultimately arrested 14 patrons for assault and public lewdness. Contrary to popular myth. You all right? Sorry, I got hiccups. Oh, that's great for podcasting. I know. 
Contrary to popular myth, there was no riot at the Black Cat, but a civil demonstration of 200 attendees to protest the raids, uh, and it was held on February 11, 1967. The demonstration was organized by a group called Pride, Personal Rights and Defense and Education. Mm-hmm. That's where Pride comes oh, from. Oh, it is. Personal Rights and Defense and Education, founded by Steve Gutenberg. No. Sorry, Steve Ginsburg. I wish it was founded by Steve Gutenberg. And the SCCRH, the Southern California Council on Religion and Homophile. Hmm. The protest was met by squadrons of armed policemen. Two of the men arrested for kissing were later convicted under California Penal Code. That has has nothing to do with this being a gay story. Uh, Section 647, and they were registered as sex offenders. The oh, men, my God. That Yeah, for kissing. For the, kissing? The men appealed, asserting their right of equal protection under the law, but the U.S. Supreme Court did not accept their case. However, there were fundraising efforts that reached New York and San Francisco for the six convicted patrons, including Benny Baker and Charles Talley. Mm-hmm. And I think they... Uh, that's all it says. Oh. Uh, the raid and the subsequent protests inspired publication of The Advocate, it oh. began as a news, newspaper for the group Personal Rights in Defense and Education, Pride. That's how it started, the advocate. There was Pride in January 67, uh, the, the Jan- this raid on the Black Hat Tavern and the August 1968 raid on the Patch mm-hmm. together inspired the formation of the Metropolitan Community Church, led by Pastor Troy Perry. For some time, the Stonewall riots became central to gay collective memory, while other events did not. Mm-hmm. On November 7, 2008, the Black Cat site was declared a Los Angeles Historic Cultural Monument. Oh, good. And present day, after operating as a gay bar under several names, most most recently Le Barcito, mm-hmm. uh, catering to the Latino community, in November 2012, the site became a restaurant and bar named the Black Cat in memory of the earlier establishment. The new Black Cat caters to a general clientele. But there are photographs of the events of, of 1967 displayed inside. I want to go. Want to go there right now? Yeah, I want to check it out. Well, we will be right back. And when we return, we will have gone to the Black Cat. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. And we're back. Monday, January 2nd, 1967, mm-hmm. U.S. Navy Commander James Stockdale, the senior prisoner of war at North Vietnam's Hoalo Prison, mm-hmm. nicknamed the... Uh, Hanoi Hilton, by its mm-hmm. inmates, mm-hmm. wrote out his first covert message using the invisible carbon that had been sent to him by U.S. Naval Intelligence in a letter from his wife. So this is a different guy than the one who did the Morse code? Yeah, this is a different guy. He's okay. using invisible ink. Oh, my. That his wife sent him. Concealed on the second page of a letter home was Stockdale's list of the names of 40 fellow American POWs in the prison camp, written perpendicular to his visible handwriting. The signal that there was a secret message in any given letter was to begin the letter with the word darling and to close with your adoring husband. So wait a minute. The That was the sign that there was a secret message in yes, it? Yes. If he wrote so any was that letter just he wrote like to universal, his wife. Or yeah, was well, that just between those two? Well, they must have told him. They must have. Because they sent him. His wife sent him this invisible carbon. I don't know how they got the message to him to say that. Maybe they blinked it in Morse code. Oh, my God. But, yeah. so That's insane. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? God, I bet that was an awful experience. Yeah, to be a prisoner of war is got to be Especially in Vietnam. Ugh. Wednesday, January 4th, 1967, British speedboat racer Donald Campbell 
mm-hmm. was attempting to become the first person to race a boat at 300 miles per hour. Wow, and that's he, pretty fast. And he apparently reached that speed in his jet-powered hydrofoil Bluebird K7 on Coniston Water, mm-hmm. a lake in Lancashire, England. Campbell had reached 297 miles per hour on his north-to-south run over one cl- run over one kilometer and was 150 meters short of completing the south-to-north return trip at an average speed of well above 300 miles per hour when the boat became airborne, mm-hmm. flipped, and disintegrated upon hitting the water, Whoa. killing Campbell instantly. Campbell's radio transmission could be heard by spectators over an intercom, and his last words were, She's going, she's going. Oh, man. The Bluebird K7 and Campbell's remains would stay at the bottom of Coniston Water for more than 34 years until his boat's recovery from the lake on March 9th, 2001, and the discovery of a skeleton on May 28th of that year. Oh, so he was hurt? Yes. I'm just kidding. He was dead. I know, I'm just kidding. Dead. But his skeleton was haunted when they brought it out. Ooh. And it was animated, and it was like, oh. They using a Ouija board, I wonder? I was going too fast. Somebody probably used a Ouija board before they found him. They might have talked to him. Maybe. They may have. Google that. Chances are they did, if it was that popular of a thing. You're right. Maybe they did. Yeah. It was popular. On Thursday, January 5th, 1967, mm-hmm. the Beatles recorded a 14-minute avant-garde performance that remains unreleased to this day, known as Carnival of Light. Oh. And it's considered the holy grail of missing Beatles songs. So who has it? Well, it's on. somebody found it and put it on YouTube. Oh, really? It's Awful. Terrible. I bet. It's worse than Revolution Rev- Number 9. Really? It's just like... It's, well, it's avant-garde. Yeah, so. you can't listen to it. It's like... It's just like Revolution Number 9. Yeah. It's just a bunch of crazy sounds mm-hmm. that hurt your ears. So... But people are all excited because it's a Beatles missing song, you know. Yeah. What if it would have been awesome? But no, it was garbage. Oh, man. Um, and on Friday, January 6, 1967, at Phu Loc in South Vietnam. I don't know if that's how you say it. P-H-U-L-O-C. Phu Loc. Mm-hmm. Vaughn Nickel, a sniper with the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Marines, registered the longest range confirmed kill in American military history. Oh. When he killed a Viet Cong sniper at a distance of 1,202 yards. Oh, my God. That's far. A distance of slightly more than one mile away from the target. What? A mile away. Can you imagine? Holy crap. Getting killed from a mile away? How did he? Was it just luck, I wonder? Well, he, he probably probably wouldn't be able a sniper to see rifle him. or something. But how could he even see him? With a scope, I guess. I have no idea. That, that's insane. That's according to Wikipedia. So I know it nothing be, about it guns. It could be wrong. I don't either. Yeah. And that brings us to Sunday, January 7th, 1967. And that brings us to my beautiful wife who's got a story to tell. Yes, I'm going to talk about the Orbit Inn bombing. All right. Glitter Gulch. Okay. And that was it. Thank you. That was a great story. (laughs) I don't know what is wrong with my wife. I believe she just had a story. So that was the unofficial name of the Casino District in downtown Las Vegas. Oh, it was called Glitter Gulch? Yes. The Casino District was called Glitter Gulch. This so, is in the 60s. Yeah, so on this was on uh, Saturday, January 7th, 1967. Saturday, January 7th, 1967. Yep, so this, oh, it was... the same day. The Jeez. same day? Oh, Jesus. Forgot your glasses. Same day that... Oh, you know what? I didn't look up anything. Sorry. You have to just... Phew. Phew. Save, saved by the... 
sloth. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. All right. Um, so this it was bustling weekend. There was a bunch of tourists there. Everybody was gambling, enjoying themselves. This was on January 7th? Yes. Oh, the same day that Nick Clagg was born, an English politician who served as Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2010 to 2015? Yep. Um. Yes. Okay. When at exactly one twenty-five a.m., yeah, they were startled by the sound of a giant explosion. Oh no! And then it followed a split second later by the violent shaking of the ground beneath their feet. Oh boy! An so, explosion. Yes. So it's a gotta be an earthquake. So then the gaming floor plunges into darkness. Oh no! Lights go out. Lights go out. So soon they flicker back on. Okay. And generators, backup generators. The the curious patrons inside kind of filter out of the El Cortez on Fremont Street okay. to find a plume of grayish black smoke rising from the site of the Orbit Inn Motel, oh. one of the two and three story motels lining the east side of Fremont Street. An enormous okay. gash had been torn into the facade of the building. Really? And shards of glass littered the street outside the El Cortez as the explosion had shattered windows for several blocks. Oh, no. Soon, people began walking in a stunned daze from the rubble of the Orbit Inn. Some survivors escaped, still dressed for bed, shoeless and clad in pajamas, cutting their feet as they fled the choking smoke billowing from the mangled lodging. Oh, that sounds awful. So the explosion at the Orbit Inn would turn out to be the deadliest bombing in the history of Las Vegas. Really? Surprisingly, in a city famous for organized crime. Yeah. Okay. But surprisingly, in a city famous for organized crime-linked bombings, this was um, carried out by a deserter from the U.S. Army Oh, for reasons that are still shrouded in mystery. Oh, mystery. So the Orbit Inn prided itself on being a cut above the rest compared to the lower-budget motels on East Fremont Street. Oh, it was better. Better. Catered to tourists looking for cheaper accommodations than those offered by larger establishments like the Horseshoe, Golden Nugget, or the Four Queens on the west side of Fremont Street. Four Queens, y'all. The Orbit Inn was a U-shaped three-story building featuring 173 rooms mm. with an elevated swimming pool on the roof to offer guests a view of downtown. Oh, that's nice. You can swim and look at the downtown. Police. <laughs> In the news. Are you making fun of me? No. All right. Police and firefighters arriving on the scene encountered a deformed version of the Orbit Inn, though. Yeah. An explosion emanating from the second floor shredded an entire wing of the building, wow. sending portions of the roof collapsing to the ground and pulverizing several rooms. Oh, my gosh. What could have done this? What could have caused this? Additional firefighters from stations outside the downtown area were ordered to the scene upon reports of the explosion to help combat the anticipated fire. But instead of flames, they were met with smoldering rubble. A firefighter on the scene commented, all there was was a big hole. We didn't see any fire. It just blew up. I guess it snuffed itself. Wow. But more jarring than the structural devastation was the human carnage wrought by the bombing. Oh, bet. So the force of the blast ripped through flesh and bones, scattering remains into the street and alleyways surrounding the orbit. Body parts and pieces and teeth and toenails and first feet. yep first responders Gosh. worked through the night performing the gruesome task of collecting remains of the victims in black body bags that were then arranged on a row on the sidewalk oh people police, imagine the smell yep no what no did it explode in a room yeah it Pol- was in a uh, someone's room yeah police ultimately recovered six bodies from the wreckage of the motel with a dozen more people treated for injuries oh. which is really not, not that's not that much not that much yeah, compared to what the carnage yeah. you're describing 
Sheriff Ralph Lamb, the head of law enforcement in Las Vegas, Ralph Lamb, y'all. for nearly two decades between 1961 and 1979, arrived on the scene shortly after the blast, where he encountered throngs of curious spectators that were filling the street from nearby hotels. Throngs. The throngs sheriff, and throngs and throngs. So that he wants to get rid of the crowd, so he thinks really quickly, um, this might not be the last explosion. And oh, yeah, then it gets them away. to go get away. scared. So it didn't take long. long. But that's a, that would cause a panic because then you wouldn't want to go back to your hotel room because there might be more in yours. Right. I, well, that's how they did it. It didn't take long for investigators to determine that the blast originated in room 214, okay. which was registered to a Richard J. Paris and his wife, Christine. Oh, he's married? And due to the nature of, of the damage from the explosion, the police were able to determine the blast at the Orbit Inn was caused by a perpetrator employing high explosives. Yeah, sounds like it. So Richard James Paris yeah. was born in Illinois in 1938 to young parents, Charles and Anne, oh. each of whom were children of Eastern European immigrants. That doesn't sound like a, an issue. So far, no flags are raising in Not my brain, brain. Paris enlisted in the military at age 17, okay. and accounts indicate he enjoyed his time in the service. Seems fine. But Seems at some fine. point, Paris's behavior caused him to be written up for violations of the Army's Code of Conduct. Oh, boy, here comes the behaviors. So he got really angry and, and embarrassed from having these being written up. Okay. Um, but we don't know why he was written up. Just No, it was just like minor infractions, I guess. Oh, okay. But then he decided to go AWOL. And uh, he went on the lam for a period of months before deciding he wanted to return. Okay. And so then he threw, when he returned, he threw himself on the mercy of the military. And he wrote to generals and pl- pleaded to be reinstated. Yeah, please reinstate me. This is all I have. So he was convincing, and then they did reinstate him, and he was assigned a position as a shipping clerk okay. in California. Stand-up job. Well, you got to have shipping clerks. Yep. While stationed in California, Paris met Christine Swigum, a woman oh. about five years his junior, that had emigrated to the U.S. with her family from Australia when she was a child. Oh, she's an Australian, mate. So they get married. Wrestling kangaroos and drinking Fosters. Yep. Australian for beer. They get married, and the marriage at least gave the outward appearance of being happy. Seems fine. Yeah, everything's fine. <laughs> things, Nothing bad will happen with this one. Think. <laughs> it's not like it's going to blow up a hotel or anything. Things went fine for a period of time until Paris again ran into trouble with his superiors in the Army. Oh. He was disciplined for some infraction. Yeah. Is it infraction or infarction? I think it's infraction, but... Those are, yeah, maybe. Is it spelled infarction? No, but is that a word? Infarction. All right. Infarction. In November of 1966, yeah. he again failed to show up for duty and went AWOL again. Oh, November of 1966? Yep. The same month that uh, I can't even remember. was on? Yeah, I'm sure it was. So um, after going <laughs> AWOL again... Paris and Christine saw his parents one last time that November. All right. And on that occasion, neither Christine or Richard gave any indication of distress. Yeah, they didn't say, they were like, no, there's no way yeah. he's going to blow up anything. So then they briefly settled in Hollywood, California, before deciding to travel around the country over the next two months. Ah, so maybe something traveling over the next two months, Bob. Traveling will do it to you. you know? <laughs> it will. You see this recently uh, viral video of this guy punching this woman's yes. chair on yes. an airplane? Like, yes. Travel just Traveling gets, it gets just, to you. It makes people insane. Remember when we were on the way to Edinburgh and that 
Oh, yeah, the lady, woman the lady was cussing somebody out in the middle of the yeah, night. We're in the middle of the ocean on a plane, and there's nowhere to land if there's an two emergency. in the morning And she or starts something. screaming. It's all dark and mother effer and F you and all this stuff. This mother effer. Yeah, it was I terrible. We were, yeah, I was a little nervous. I thought we were all going to die. I did. I was. I got very alarmed. Yep. Anyway. Anyway, travel gets to you. Travel does it get makes to you. A, it makes you a bomber. You got a point. So they... Um, Went to Las Vegas in early 67. Yeah. And then he made a trip to Phoenix, Arizona, where he legally purchased sef- several pounds of dynamite. So at this point, he's wanting to do cause damage. Whatever yeah. snapped and, in him has snapped. And obtained a permit to lawfully transport the explosives. So Clark County District Attorney George Franklin weighed in within hours of the blast, concluding that Paris perpetrated the bombing as a form of murder-suicide, resulting from a domestic quarrel. Ah, uh, under his theory, a domestic quarrel. So he thinks they got in a fight yeah. about maybe was gambling too much or traveling or. Yep. Uh, under his she theory, uh, she maybe had been cheating. engaged in extramarital affairs, and oh, Richard Paris right, had yeah. decided he would take revenge on her in Las Vegas. And so he waited until his wife left the motel. Then he loaded a corner of the room with recently purchased dynamite. And then when she returned later that night, he was waiting with his twenty-five pistol in, in his hand and fired a single round into the pile of dynamite, causing the bundle of explosives to erupt. Jeez. I mean, just kill her and yourself, bro. You don't have to kill everybody. Yep. Yikes. So within... Wait a minute. Did you just say just kill her and yourself? <laughs> no, I no, I'm not saying I want him to kill her, but... If you're going to do that, you know, he's mad at her, so he wants her to die, right? Yeah, I guess. And the plan is to kill himself, so he doesn't have to go to jail or face any consequences. So just, why do you have to blow up a whole building and kill five of whoever else? So within days, there was a dispute between the top prosecutor in Las Vegas and the chief of detectives. Yeah. So the chief of detectives said, um, I don't know where the DA gets his theories, but it's certainly not from the Las Vegas Police Department. Oh, this um, sounds like a pissing match to me. It it did turn into one. He even posited that the blast may have been accidental rather than a suicide. You know, sometimes I sense pissing matches coming a mile away, and they always end up a pissing match. <laughs> Detective Gulas notes that an automatic, like the, do you say 25? Is that what you it's like a dot twenty five. A twenty five, yeah. Okay. Twenty five caliber is what that means, I think. I think. Okay. I'm not a big gun guy either. But but he, what he I'm know- wondering is, is Detective Goulash does he eat goulash? Maybe, but he notes that an automatic like that found in the alley behind the Orbit Inn ejects a shell when fired, but investigators had failed to recover a shell casing, and the guy said, "We can't even prove the gun was fired recently." So the police are so that they, they they're saying who cares how he started the bomb? No, they're they're trying to motive. They're trying to figure out the motive, and that's what they're squabbling over. Oh, uh, so if he shoots the explosives, it's one motive, and if he doesn't shoot the explosive, it's well, another? no, it, it's because he didn't shoot her. Was it right? accidental? Was it on purpose? What was the? You've got to find their motive. Yeah, but if you get a pile of explosives, that's definitely on purpose. You don't just yeah, buy I know. a bunch of explosives. I know. I get you. So when questioned by reporters, the yeah. district attorney admitted he had additional concerns when announcing his views on the cause of the bombing. Yeah. So rumors began circulating within hours of the blast that the Orbit Inn had been targeted by the mafia. Oh. And so the DA was like, he he would rather say anything than have that be the rumor that's right. going around. So the evidence was eventually forwarded to the FBI 
could draw a conclusion on the cause. That stands for Federal Bureau of Investigations. Yes, and it had, they had a greater ability to synthesize Richard Paris's movements around the country with evidence recovered at the blast site. And synthesizers were made famous by Herbie Hancock. And so the FBI returned a verdict that he intentionally detonated the dynamite he purchased because uh, he was bent on suicide because of his troubles in the service. Oh, so maybe he was facing more troubles or has nothing else. Maybe he doesn't think he can do anything else or whatever. Yeah. So it was only a matter of days uh, before hotels and motels around Las Vegas received hotel. bomb threats. Motel. A little after 8 o'clock a.m. on January 10th, the manager... Oh, wait, January oh. 10th, 1967, the same day that President Lyndon B. Johnson delivered the annual State of the Union address to Congress and told the gathered legislators, I recommend to the Congress a surcharge of 6% on both corporate and individual income taxes to last for two years or so, as long as the unusual expenditures associated with our efforts in Vietnam continue. Regarding the war, Johnson said, I wish I could report to you that the conflict is almost over. This I cannot do. We face more cost, more loss, and more agony. Presidents would never say that nowadays. I know. He's going to no, keep none on of with the war would. and want to tax people to pay for it. But he's at least, he's really, he's at least being honest with what he's doing. Yeah. Presidents n on either side would never say something like that these days. He delivered a record $135 billion federal government budget proposal. Wow. Yep. He had some balls on him. And he showed everybody. Yes, I know. Yeah. So, yes, a little after 8 o'clock a.m. on January 10th. On that same day. The manager of the Minuteman Motel. Minuteman. Which was a small downscale establishment on Las Vegas Boulevard between the Strip and downtown. But think about this, though. Think about this. This all happened the same day he was given that speech. Yes. But nobody they, heard about it because... They Technology a, wasn't like that. They received a phone call, and, okay. the, and the guy said, are you familiar with what happened at the Orbit Inn? And when the manager replied <laughs> that he was, like the caller replied, you have 20 minutes, and your motel will look just like that. Oh. Then the line went dead. Copycat. The building was evacuated and searched. No bomb was found. No bomb. Another result of the Orbit Inn bombing was a mini scandal surrounding medical care for the victims of the blast. Oh, no. Let's hear this. An elderly couple injured in the explosion was treated in the emergency room of the Southern Nevada Memorial Hospital. Yeah. When they later sought admission to the hospital, they were allegedly denied and prevented from leaving the hospital until they paid their emergency room bill. I'm sorry, Stella and Floyd. We can't put you in here. You have to pay your bill. That's right. So the board of but trustees... I don't, have my, I don't have my bank account. I don't have my checkbook on me. Yep. Sorry. The, the board of trustees for the hospital quickly convened to pass a measure commending the hospital's handling of the bombing's aftermath. Oh, okay. But one of the two dissenters was a trustee named Harry Reid, who ended up being the future powerful the U.S. Harry senator Reed? from Nevada. Really? Yep, he objected to passing the measure until the board heard from the critics of the hospital. Yeah. So he was doing good. Yeah, good for Harry Reid. But the measure did pass over his objection. Oh, but his, his opposition was a notable stand in favor of hearing out all sides rather than rushing to protect the hospital's reputation. A final result of the bombing was an effort by state legislators from Clark County to pass the Orbit Inn Act, oh. which would have restricted possession or sale of high explosives without authorization from the Nevada Fire Marshal. Very common sense legislation. It seems normal to not give bombs to just anybody. Yeah. This was a reaction to Richard Paris's perfectly legal possession and transportation of several dozen pounds of dynamite yeah. leading up to the attack. That's crazy. We don't need to buy dynamite. 
This seemingly common-sense bill faced opposition from northern Nevada legislatures reliant on the mining industry. Oh, in 1967, oh, the political power in Nevada resided in the northern rather than the southern part of the state, and the Orbitin Act was ultimately defeated. So you can still nope. buy yeah, of course. dynamite. Nope, we all have to be able to explode everything. Yep. In the end, Richard J. Paris and the reasons why he blew up the Orbit Inn on a winter day in 1967 remain an enigma. Nobody really knows. He was generally viewed as a happy, friendly young man by his family, and he had obvious dedication to the Army, though he clearly had recurring impulse control issues that caused him to run into military discipline. But these behavior problems never rose to the level where the military sought to discharge Paris. In fact, had Paris not compounded his own problems by going AWOL twice... It's likely he could have achieved some level of success in the military. Oh, yeah, he would be very well decorated. So, so further complicating a determination of his motive is that the initial news reports do not suggest any marital woes between Richard and Christine. They don't. Only retrospective accounts yeah. decades after the attack mention sure. the belief held by the DA and the sheriff and all that. Um, but and then after this, you would just like... You would, like, really analyze anything, anything you heard them say or do. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, there must have been something there. Yeah. But what we do know is his des he, that Richard Paris desired to make the military his life from a young age. Okay. And he may have been drawn to the routine and, belonged, and belonging offered by the Army. Yeah. And then after he enlisted at age 17, he probably ran into minor disciplinary issues for engaging in the sort of rowdy behavior not uncommon for a young man living in close quarters with other young men. Yeah. But rather than dealing with the disciplinary measures implemented by the Army, the perfectionist Paris viewed as an official reprimand as a humiliating black mark on his character. Uh. When Paris ruined his chance at a military career by going AWOL the second time, he might have thought it impossible to imagine any sort of meaningful yeah, future. Yeah, he probably had nothing else, so might as well kill a bunch of people. Yes. But the delay between going AWOL and when Paris committed mass murder in downtown Las Vegas, suggests trouble with his wife may have exacerbated the stress. Yeah, maybe he couldn't that led get to a, the bombing. Couldn't get an erection. The Orbit Inn was repaired and reopened later in 1967. The motel persisted for another two decades before closing. Okay. By that time, downtown Vegas had developed a reputation as a seedier area of the city which was eventually reversed in the early 2000s with the redevelopment of the town. Yeah. The old Orbit Inn was torn down and replaced but with the Container Park in 2013, which is a large open-air shopping and dining area Container guarded Park. by a giant fire-spewing grasshopper sculpture. That's weird. Most of the other broken-down motels lining East Fremont are slated for destruction in the near future to make room for further development in line with the new face of Las Vegas. Container Park Grasshopper. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. That's where the bombing was. So I got this um, article from mayheminthedesert.com. Mayheminthedesert.com is a website. Yes. That's insane. Okay. Great. Well, thanks. Because that was so long, I'm going to have to move quick through the yep. rest of the month because I got a lot of stuff. Oh, geez. So January 9th, Monday night, January 9th, yes. 1967. Two, yes. Two parodies of the popular superhero genre premiered on the same evening uh, with CBS showing attorney-turned-actor Stephen Strimple in the title role of Mr. Terrific Stephen at 8 Strimple? Yep. Jeez. Followed by NBC's Captain Nice, portrayed by William Daniels. Both were rolled out as mid-season replacements in response to the success of ABC's Batman. 
Okay. Yep. And then Thursday, January 12th, 1967, following his death from cancer, mm-hmm. Professor James Bedford became the first person to be cry- cryonically preserved oh, with we the talked about intent that. of future resuscitation. So he's the guy who actually does that. He gets frozen. You well, mentioned him, I Walt think. Disney. Yeah, we mentioned yeah. him because Walt Disney wasn't. It was actually this guy. Right. So he actually does this. And I had a bunch of more information about this guy, but we're going to skip it Yes, time. that sounds good. Friday, January 13th, 1967, members of the New York Police Department saved about 300 sleeping residents of the Jamaica section of the borough of Queens, running from house to house in the 20 minutes before a natural gas explosion leveled houses and started a fire that eventually destroyed 22 buildings. The NYPD was alerted at 5.11 in the morning, and the underground gas lines exploded at 5.30, but only four people were hurt. Well, done seriously because they warned everybody. That's awesome. I mean, it's an awesome, but it's yeah. I I don't I forgot to write down how they knew it was going to blow up. But Saturday, January fourteenth, nineteen sixty seven, organized by counterculture publisher Alan Cohen and artist Michael Bowen, the Human Bee In took place at the Polo Grounds in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, with twenty thousand hippies gathering in the Haight Ashbury district to see performances by the Grateful Dead. Poet Allen Ginsberg, comedian Dick Gregory, activist Jerry Rubin, and psychologist and LSD advocate Timothy Leary, who urged the audience to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Can you imagine how how that must have smelled? A mixture between like BO and pot and patchouli. Twenty thousand hippies. <laughs> oh, nobody wipes or I shaves know. or anything. Media coverage of the event introduced the American public to the hippie movement and set the stage for what would be described as the summer of love. Bunch I've of always been hippies. I hippies have always appealed to me though. Yeah, because you like to stink. No, there. Oh. It's the the philosophy has always oh, appealed yeah. the to me. Philosophy is great, and and the, I like the look. Free love, I think man. The, look is, the look is cool. The hairy armpits. Well, maybe not so much that, but the yeah. like huge bushes. No, stop it. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you're terrible. No. Uh, and then okay, this one's long, so I'm going to try to get through it fast. Sunday, January fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. Would you like to guess the cost of a Super Bowl ad? Oh, my God. We haven't done that in a while. Do you know why we haven't done it? Why? Because the Super Bowl didn't exist. Oh, this is the first Super Bowl. This is the first Super Bowl, Are 1967. You... you got boner, Rabe. I do. We finally got to oh, the I first figured. Super Bowl. It, it took me a while to figure this out. I was like, why? Oh, geez, the cost of the Super Bowl. We haven't done this in a while. Yeah, it was because this there is were the no first Super Bowl. one. So guess the f- super, first year of Super Bowl ads. What is the cost? $6,000. Oh, no. <laughs> did That's I, way too cheap. I was going to say, did I just ruin it for you by way lowballing it? Yeah. Sorry. Now it seems expensive. I know. <laughs> but it should be expensive because it's a Super Bowl. Land. But, so, how, were but, they, the but 60s, how did they know it was going to be a big thing? Think about that. It was because, the first one. It might not have caught on. Or because it was, the, it was the two leagues merging. It was $42,000. That's a lot in 67. $42,000 in the 60s? Yeah, I know. That's, that is a lot. That's insane. This was the first AFL-NFL World Championship game in professional American football known retroactively as the Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Well, they didn't call and it the Super Bowl. It was the Green Bowl Bay yet. Packers. Yeah. It was January 1567 at Los Angeles, California. Yes, kind of. Okay, were the Green Bay Packers in the NFL or the AFL? I think the 
NFL. Right? They were the NFL See? champion Green Bay Packers, and they defeated the I American Football you. League champion Kansas City Chiefs by the score of 35-10. to 10. I listen to you, blather. I listen. So coming into this game, there was a lot of animosity between the AFL and the AF- NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, thus, the teams representing the two rival leagues felt pressure to win. Uh the Chiefs had beat the Buffalo Bills pretty heavily in the AFL, and the Packers beat the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL championship game. Still, many sports writers and fans believed any team in the older NFL was vastly superior to any club in the upstart AFL, so expected Green Bay would blow out Kansas City, which they did. Okay. The first half was competitive. Uh, no, I'm not going to go into that. About Thank God. Thank Bart you, Starr Jesus. was the Thank MVP. Thank you, Jesus. This remains the only Super Bowl to have been simulcast in the United States by two networks. NBC had the rights to nationally televised AFL games, while CBS had the rights to NFL games, but both were allowed to televise the game. God, I can't imagine what you skipped was. Like, <laughs> it was about the actual game and how it was. I, can't, I mean, if that was what you left in there, hey. I can't imagine how boring what no, you skipped think, was. Think about it. It was on two chan- Like two networks got to play it. That's, All right. that's exciting. Trying to think. Uh, there's a lot of football stuff that's cool and awesome in here that I'm skipping for you. We could just, uh, yeah, we could just say, and that's that. That's the end of what we need to know about so, that. There's all these things, though. The AFL and Lenifer were two separate leagues. They used different kinds of balls, different sized balls. So they had to figure out what to use. So what they did is one team used one ball when they had the ball, and the other team used a different ball. Like, that's interesting to me. One, they had different rules. The AFL had a. Uh, uh, one had a two-point conversion and one mm-hmm. did extra points. Uh, one one had numeric yard markers five yards apart. The other one had ten. No, I don't know. Uh, but, oh, here's the big thing. All known broadcast tapes of the game in its entirety were subsequently wiped by both NBC and CBS, again, to save costs. Remember we talked about some other oh, things? They re- that were yeah, they taped over they it. They just taped over stuff because they were so expensive. So they taped over the first Super yeah, Bowl? Yeah, so the first Super Bowl did not exist anywhere. Oh uh, my God, that's an that's insane to think. Yeah, uh, and because and they like had no idea lost to time. they had no idea the Super Bowl would become such a big thing. Like they had no idea. Yeah, so, but still. Uh, so there's no you can't watch it anywhere. Well, for many years, only two small samples of the telecast were known to have survived, mm-hmm. uh, showing some of the highlights. Both were shown in 1991 on HBO's Play by Play, History of Sports Television. But in January 2011, a partial recording of the CBS telecast was reported to have been found in a Pennsylvania attic and was restored by the Paley Center for Media in New York. Uh, The two-inch color videotape is the most complete version of the broadcast yet discovered, missing only the halftime show and most of the third quarter. (laughs) (laughs) They changed They were watching watching gun smoke. The NFL owns broadcast copyrights, blocked at sale or distribution. Uh, NFL Films had a camera crew present and retains a substantial amount of film footage in the archives. And then on January 11, 2016, the NFL announced that an exhaustive process that took months to complete, NFL Films searched its enormous archives of footage and were able to locate all 145 plays from Super Bowl I from more than a couple dozen disparate sources. 
Once all the plates were located, NFL Films was able to put the plates in order and stitch them together while fully restoring, remastering, and color correcting the footage. Finally, audio from the NBC Sports radio broadcast featuring announcers Jim Simpson and George Ratterman was oh, layered on top of the it. footage yeah. to complete the broadcast. The final result represents the only known video footage of the entire action from Super Bowl One, And they play it on NFL Network now. Oh, they do? Uh, yeah. Have you ever uh, seen it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think when they brought it back out, I watched it. Was it awesome or weird? I did a thing where I wanted to watch all Super Bowls in a row, and I watched them all. God. <laughs> There's something wrong with you. I like chronology. This I know why, you do. Why, you were obsessed with it. That's why I started this idea of going year by year. No, this was my idea. The chronology part was my idea. No, this was my idea. You want to do a murder podcast, and, and, and you said I could be jokey and i came up with a chronology thing because i'm obsessed remember i said you know how i'm obsessed with oh time? yeah that's true obsessed with chronology and putting yes. things in order and and then uh, and are you like, sure you weren't the one to put your poop balls in order no that was john i just like chronology and like something about it like i have to go to the beginning like i can't watch that's one weird. star wars movie unless i start with stupid crappy phantom menace and watch them all in a row <laughs> that is a trap to be in i love it it's I'm like watching all the Oscar trap. movies. I'm on 1940. I'm watching <gasps> all the movies that were nominated. So I'm on 1945. That's like your thing with the presidents. The presidents. Same thing. I'm still on John Adams. Be, <laughs> I'm almost done with John Adams. <laughs> and you've been doing it for 15 years. <laughs> but I got to know everything about them. Everything there is. Everything that's ever been written. Anything ever, everywhere. I'm almost done with John Adams. <laughs> and then that same Sunday, the Rolling Stones appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show for the second time but only after acceding to a demand by Sullivan to alter the words of their hit song, Let's Spend the Night Together. Oh, let's spend some time together. Yeah, after Sullivan reportedly said, either the song goes or the stones go, and Mick Jagger got scared and sang the refrain as, Let's Spend Some Time mm -hmm. Together. He changed it for them. Mm -hmm. The Rolling Stones bended to Ed Sullivan's whim. And they're no, that's no, they're no Jim Morrison. Well, that's a preview for later in the year, so mm -hmm. don't talk about that. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and on Friday, January 27th, 1967, the United States and Russia signed a treaty agreeing not to nuke the moon. Jeez. The outer space Men are so stupid. <laughs> the outer space treaty. Men are so stupid. It was necessary because both were planning on it. That's, I'll just put it that way. They were what? both planning on trying to blow up the moon. Why? The moon. They uh, we wanted to see what would happen. We couldn't survive without the moon. They didn't know that. But men are just idiots. They both had plans to try to blow up the moon to see what would happen. Jeez. Just get it over with. The treaty includes the moon and other celestial bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the first that forms the basis of international space law. It prohibits the placing of nuclear weapons in space. It limits the use of the moon and all other celestial bodies to peaceful purposes only. And establishes that space will be free for exploration and use by all nations. And no nation can claim sovereignty over outer space or celestial body. Jeez. And also, according to that treaty, you can be arrested for a crime committed anywhere in the known universe. On yes. the moon? You can be arrested for a crime you, you committed yeah, on the moon? Yeah, you committed a crime. If you, if you forcibly put your thumb on someone's butt on the moon, you can be arrested for it. <laughs> And that concludes, that's all I have for January. Phew. That concludes January of 1967 with the yes. tree, uh, no moon blowing up. What? 
The Treaty of the no, Treaty of No Treaty of Blowing no, Up. Treaty of what did I call it? Treaty of Versailles. No, I know. I'm. I know what that is. What did I just call it? I forgot. The Treaty, Treaty of Fomunda Cheese. Do you know what Fomunda Cheese is? <laughs> yes. It comes from the moon. Yep. It kind of no, does. Yeah. It kind of does if you think about it. No, it doesn't. Well, we all come the from moon, the moon. Get it? Well, the moon is a p- chunk of Earth. You know the, that, The right? moon is also when your pants... When you pull your the pants Outer out. Space Treaty. Oh, okay. Do you know the moon is a, a chunk of Earth that got knocked off by a meteorite and then started orbiting? They think. It definitely is. So there could be somebody's grandma in there. In the, in the moon? In it, yeah. In it? In it. I don't think there was... Veg- I, I think if it did, I, it was before the Earth had any vegetation and stuff. Maybe. Because the know. earth started as just like a ball of ice. Bless you. Anyway, this was episode 99. Next episode is our 100th episode. Get ready to get your nips It's going to be the craziest episode ever. We're going to have dancers. We're going to have singers. We're going to have, <laughs> I I think, uh, uh, pop superstar Ed Sheeran might make an appearance. Maybe. On our podcast. Maybe uh, another pop superstar, Andy Hunsaker. Leaf, or... Leaf Garrett. Muppet. Uh, Leaf Garrett might show up. Who's that? Uh, who's that red-haired guy from the Partridge Family that had alcohol problems? I don't know. It's time to get out of here. He Chuck might Barry. be. <laughs> we might have B. Arthur sing from the Star Wars bar. Anyway, we got to go. Thank you for listening. We apologize for everything we've done wrong to any of you. Anyone who we've wronged. Yep. Uh, Any Dan Briggs, information Duncan we got Briggs, incorrect. Tim Anderson doesn't listen. It's not our fault because we plagiarize everything, so it's not our fault if there's any information oh, we got incorrect. Yeah, here's a shout out to somebody who won't hear this for a long time because she went back to episode one to listen. Oh, she's a coworker of mine. She's in our HR department. Her name is Tori Harrington. Shout out! Shout out to Tori. Whoop, Tori! Thanks for listening. Thanks for going back to episode one. Yeah. If you somehow Ooh. stick it through and get to this, then you deserve this. Thanks. Yeah, no kidding. I love you all. She, we should probably give her probably fifty bucks too. I'll give you fifty bucks, and you are also included oh, in that CVS. Uh, yes, but what, what did you tell him? Get, get your you get your get your bush out. out. You're just your bush at CVS, and you get and tell them this American timelines. And if you don't get arrested, you win a prize. Thanks for listening, y'all. <laughs> Matt Truman is good singing. We're so tired of hearing about the six days. I said, We're so tired of hearing about the six days. When you were all alone, no watched our kids in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. I said, We're so tired of American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Samantha, that's a hickey.